Hello, and welcome to In Our Spare Time. For the next seven weeks, I will be joined by 21 students from across Oxford University, discussing their academic and intellectual passions. Each week, we will have a different theme, ranging from Marxism to medieval song, Cicero to Sondheim. Perhaps you will be able to guess the uh, long-running Radio 4 show on which this concept is based. Answers on a postcard, please. For over three millennia, astronomers have been looking to the heavens. Yet, less than 100 years ago, observations were made suggesting the existence of a previously unknown substance permeating the universe in vast abundance, yet invisible to even the most powerful telescope. This substance has been aptly christened dark matter, and though in nature it seems to be ubiquitous, all attempts to explicitly detect it have hitherto been unsuccessful. So, what is dark matter? Why do we think it exists? And what has it got to do with a four-ton tank of liquid argon two kilometres underneath Ontario? My name is Alan Walker, and with me to discuss current research into dark matter are Peter Hatfield, a third-year DFL student at Lincoln College, Fran Day, a third-year DFL student at Magdalen College, and Teresa Bromwich, a second-year DFL student also at Magdalen College. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Perhaps we could start by discussing the historical background to dark matter. What were the first experiments that people did to suggest that there, there was other stuff out there than what we could see? So the very first indication that there might be some kind of substance out there in the universe that wasn't giving off light kind of dates back to the 30s. It was only as early as the sort of 1920s that people actually uh, grew to understand that there was things outside of our galaxy. Most famous uh, evidence for the existence of dark matter came in the 60s and 70s, where people studied how these galaxies are rotating. I'm sure everyone listening kind of knows the kind of iconic image of spiral galaxies. If you kind of look at the dynamics of how these stars are rotating, they appear to be rotating much faster than how much mass there is. You can understand how much mass is in stars, and it's rotating much faster. So people proposed the existence of a new type of matter that we didn't know about. So if I understand it correctly, you'd expect from the matter we see that the stars around the middle would rotate quite fast, but then it, it would, things would tail off as you got outside the galaxy, and you said that, that's not what is observed. If you do a, if you do a plot of uh, how fast stars are rotating relative to how far they are from the centre, uh, you would expect this to drop off very fast, whereas we see that ones even far up on the outside of the galaxy are going extremely fast. This is directly in contradiction of what you would expect if, there was only, if all the mass in the galaxy was inside the stars. So you would be looking for, um, so what you're basically doing is you're, it's, it's like you're, the centrifugal force equal to the gravitational attraction of all the matter that you've got in the middle. And what you're expecting is a one over the square root of the distance from the, from the centre of your, your galactic structure. And you'd expect that to fall off according to that relationship and, and that it would be very, very clear. And is that sort of Newton's law of gravitation? That yes, we're yeah, so it's, this is just uh, standard it's, gravitation. It's very classical to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah very. Um, but what's so dramatic about when you actually plot this, so you, you measure the velocity of uh, different um, objects within the galaxy at various different places using their Doppler shift um, and other techniques, um, and what you find is that it radically diverges from that pattern. So you see a very, very flat distribution suggesting that even though when you look at the galaxy, you see that most of the stuff that's giving off light that we observe is concentrated in the middle. All of the stuff around the edges behaves as if, as if there's like a continuous distribution of mass, almost like a halo around what you're seeing. 
Um, and that's what's referred to often as a dark matter halo. So this kind of invisible mass that's causing things further out to be travelling much faster than they should be. You've got objects behaving as if there's mass there that you can't see. Um, so that's why, where the name dark matter comes from, is because we, uh, it does not give off light in the way that other luminous matter does. So you'd expect, you look up into the sky where you see light um, that's coming from stars, and so you assume that that is where the matter is concentrated, but this dark matter doesn't give off light in that way, so we can't detect it in traditional methods using telescopes and such. Yeah, it's because we just can't, can't see it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, okay, so I sort of feel where we are. We have these um, rotating galaxy clusters, which we can't explain with the matter we can see. But sort of reading your notes, there are other ways since those early experiments that Peter's been telling us about. Do one of you want to come in on on these other things, is thinking about gravitational lensing. So, so more, a more recent uh, observation that people have been able to carry out to kind of confirm these ideas is the idea of gravitational lensing. Um, Einstein's theory of general relativity is the kind of upgrade to Newtonian gravity that explains how things behave when gravity gets really strong. And that actually describes that when there's a gravitational source, uh, light is curved round. That this was the first reason that evidence. Uh, that showed that Einstein's gravity was right. People observed light rays being bent around the sun during an eclipse. We can do the same with dark matter. If you look at a galaxy and see how strongly light is bent around it, that implies that there's much more mass there than you can see in the actual stars, which again agrees with the amount of mass that we would infer exists there from the rotation of the galaxies. So you have one object that's closer to another... So, so the galaxy that's behaving as the lens is kind of closer to us and then you've maybe got another galaxy or something else far away in the distance and it literally behaves like a lens and can focus light around it and the strength of that is dependent on the distribution of mass but that distribution of mass doesn't agree with where the stars are but it does agree with the distribution of mass that one might infer from the rotation that we were discussing earlier. Now, so in the interest of, of fairness, we ought to say that dark matter is, although the main theory, it's not the only theory that's been posited to explain these gravitational anomalies, for want of a better term. Um, modified Newtonian dynamics is what you said. Uh, Fran, do you want to tell us a bit about that and why perhaps it's not the main theory, but, but what it yeah. tries to tell us? So the idea with modified Newtonian dynamics is that rather than introducing a new particle, we could change Newton's law of gravitation or change um, the laws of dynamics to accommodate these new observations. And it actually works quite well for observations in galaxies, but there are problems with modifying Newtonian dynamics. For example, it was recently observed, we had this great observation of something called the bullet cluster. And this is two galaxy clusters that are colliding. So this is a really spectacular event, and we're really lucky to have been able to observe it. How many light years across are we talking about for these clusters? Do... Oh, um, so what, uh, millions. What millions. Millions of light years across. I think so. I think it's about three billion light years away, and then in the order of millions of light years yeah. across. Yeah, so these are like big objects. <laughs> They're the largest gravitationally bound structures in the universe. They're huge, and these two are colliding. And we can use these gravitational lensing techniques to work out where all of the mass in the collision is. So we can sort of map out the mass. And we can also see where the visible matter is with telescopes. And what you see is that the visible matter is in this like horrible jumble in the middle where they've collided. 
if you imagine two cars colliding, you'd get like a car crash and it would all be horrible and all over the place. And that's what we see with the visible matter. But when we map out where the dark matter is, dark matter is most of the mass of the clusters, we find that it's basically just passed straight through each other. Like if you, um, if you had two waves of water, it would basically just go straight through each other. So you have this horrible crash in the middle and dark matter on either side. And this is exactly what we'd expect from dark matter because dark matter doesn't really interact with normal matter or with itself very much. So it doesn't really do collisions, it just passes through. And it's very hard to see how you'd get that pattern with modified Newtonian dynamics. It currently can't be explained by that thing. No, I haven't seen anything. Have you seen an attempt to do it? I, ha I haven't, not with the example of the bullet cluster. I mean, the bullet cluster is used as one of the sort of... Smoking guns. Smoking guns <laughs> of of uh, the existence of dark matter as like a particle uh, as opposed to a modified gravity theory. Yeah. Um, so we have these particles, but there are obviously lots of particles in the universe that they could be. So do one of you, maybe Peter, want to take us through some of the candidates that people came up with for what dark matter could be and, you know, how some of them bit the dust? <laughs> uh, so as of kind of the 70s when people were kind of originally uh, measuring the rotation curves, my understanding was that uh, there kind of wasn't enough understanding of the astrophysics of how stars and galaxies and so on behaved. Um, that it could have still been like um, another form of matter. Like we know that actually only a very small amount of normal matter is in stars. Most of it is kind of gas around the galaxy. So uh, kind of people's understanding of, of gas wasn't sophisticated enough at the time to definitively say that we needed a new type of particle. Um, but subsequently, since people have kind of understood more where the gas is, uh, we've understood like how many brown dwarfs, which are like a kind of like very dim faint star. Maybe there could have been loads of them that we didn't know about, but now we think we can rule that out. Uh, and slowly, kind of like all these kind of conventional solutions have kind of been ruled out. People thought like, well, neutrinos are a type of particle that doesn't really interact with anything. Maybe there's just lots more, more neutrinos than we thought. But again, like uh, that's been ruled out for various reasons. And slowly, we've kind of like ruled out everything conventional, leaving that it has to be some new type of particle that we think we don't uh, know about, but hopefully we'll find. There are these things, those machos and whips. I see. So machos were out of. It's, a, it's an acronym. What's so it? Macho, I think, is a massive uh, compact halo object. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So those would actually, I think, be made out of normal matter. That but there'd be something like a, something a, like a mini black hole, or, or even. Or, it's like or, the only thing that hasn't been ruled out, basically. Failed stars, I think. Yeah. yeah. But they're cool then. Yeah. Um, so I think you can still have models where these work, but it's a bit yeah, of a stretch these days. So we say rules out. Maybe Talitha, could you develop this a bit? So how do we rule these things out? This so is... what's really interesting about dark matter is that it's kind of um, it's although we're, a lot of particle physicists are now working on it, the evidence and limitations that we place on it, a lot of those come from astrophysical constraints. So in terms of um, the dark matter density required in the universe for these very complex models that we have of how the universe evolved. Um, so these, it's called the Lambda Cold Dark Matter Model. Um, it places very strict constraints on um, the mass and the, uh, the velocity of these particles. Um, so when, when we say like machos are ruled out, that tends to be from astrophysical uh, measurements. We, we don't see enough of them to account 
for the density required to fulfil um, the conditions of this kind of evolution of the galaxy that, that very much agrees with um, what we observe in the universe today um, and how we would explain the evolution of the universe. So it, it's, it's interesting that you sort of, you're looking for something very specific on a very small scale in a particle physics realm, but the constraints that you place and how you rule out potential particles or windows of other things is based on astrophysical theories. And there's kind of a lot of like historical fruitful interaction between particle physics and astronomy. Like the, the chemical element helium was first discovered on the sun through uh, emission of spe specific frequencies of light that helium gave off before we discovered helium on Earth. Um, constraining how many neutrino species there are uh, was kind of like constrained through cosmological observations before particle physics could kind of understand how that was working. So hopefully the same will happen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, so we've uh, ruled out brown dwarfs, we've ruled out neutrinos. Are neutrinos ruled out in the same cosmological um, approaches? Or? Uh, I, I think they're not, they don't exist in sufficient quantities and also they're too hot. Yeah, the issue is that one of the other reasons, yet another reason that we need dark matter is for structure formation. So you look in the sky, you see all kinds of structures, there's stars and galaxies and galaxy clusters. And if you trace the evolution of the universe from the Big Bang to today, just looking at normal matter, there just wasn't time for that amount of structure to form because all the normal matter was in what we call a thermal soup. So it was all just really hot and interacting with each other. So it wouldn't have gravitationally clustered. So you need dark matter to decouple from that thermal soup earlier because it doesn't really interact much and then cluster. It forms... Um, kind of blobs, which are <laughs> gravitational, <laughs> gravitational wells, which the normal matter can then fall into and form galaxies and stuff. Neutrinos can't do this because they're too light, so they just move really fast for ages. So you're saying sort of dark matter is responsible for the universe being in the sort of shape Absolutely. that we see it. It's hard to say how galaxies would have formed without dark matter. Yeah. We've ruled out neutrinos, we've ruled out brown dwarfs, and we're down to quite a sort of constrained possibility. So there are these wimps that we began to talk about, um, and also something that I think Fran will come in on, uh, axions. Axions. Want to tell us a bit about axions, Fran? Yeah, so um, axions are an interesting kind of dark matter. So axion is kind of like a particle that is motivated by various problems in particle physics, and it's also motivated by string theory. So string theory, which you might know, um, is kind of our only working theory of particle physics at very, very high energies, totally unconfirmed, of course. <laughs> and it models particles as little vibrations on strings, which is not as silly as it sounds. Anyway, <laughs> string theory predicts there'd be loads and loads of axions. Now, axions are very, very light, particles. And you might remember I just said that light particles can't be dark matter. So axion dark matter works a bit differently. Um, so we kind of have to take a step back and ask what is a particle. And today particle physicists believe that particles are ripples on quantum fields, which are like fundamental fields that span the whole of space and time. Like ripples on water, and that's a particle. And a normal particle is like a little ripple, like if you have, um, like you mess up a bathtub and you'll see loads of little ripples on the surface. 
with Axiom Dark Matter, we're doing something different to the field. We're making it oscillate all as one. Like if you dropped something really heavy in a bathtub and it would sloosh from one side to the other. So it's the field moving in a different way. And when you work, work it all out, that behaves like it was a, a heavier particle, like particle dark matter. Okay, uh, your, your power of metaphor is wonderful. <laughs> I've, I've se seeing the bathtub in my mind's eye. Okay, so we have axioms on the one hand, and we have uh, WIMPs. What do WIMPs stand for? Again? So, uh, WIMP stands for weakly interacting massive particle, basically. Um, so, what's really tantalizing about sort of having a particle dark matter is that we have lots of theories that predict particles that could, if they existed, um, <laughs> fulfill the criteria necessary. So as well as axions, we have, um, so you may have heard of supersymmetry and the supersymmetric particles. So, which is... Well, hold on, I know yeah. nothing about so, <laughs> so it's basically an expansion to the standard model where you have a whole other set of, uh, of particles to the existing ones that we know about that are heavier. Um, and these are predicted by uh, supersymmetric theory um, to explain various problems that we have with the standard model. So the standard model is... Yeah, just, yeah. It's, our, it's our basic, um, kind of like the periodic table for particle physics. It's the particles we know of and how they relate to each other um, as embodied in a series of equations that we can use to predict how they will interact and explain how they work on a fundamental sort of level. So these are the particles that go together to form nucleuses of atoms? And yes, as atoms. well as um, other particles such as um, we've mentioned previously neutrinos um, and electrons going around the outside of the atoms, um, as well as more kind of exotic things, but things that have been measured and found and that we understand you know, quite well from experiments such as the Large Hadron Collider where we study them. So the hope is that this new dark matter particle, whatever it ends up being, we could add to the standard model or it would be yeah. a slightly separate? Yeah, no, so the, these, I mean, there are lots of suggestions. The standard model is incomplete as it stands at the moment, um, so which is why there's so much active research into looking for explaining contradictions that we see. Um, one of the things that's dominated particle physics studies for quite a number of years now is this supersymmetric theory, this idea that there's this whole other family of heavier particles. Um, and we are now at the stage where we have colliders that can reach the energies to detect these particles. Um, and the hope is that we'll start seeing some of them soon now that we're at those energies at the LHC. Um, they ha none of them have been detected yet, <laughs> but if they are, some of the lightest amongst them are very good dark matter candidates. Um, and they all come under the class of these WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. That segues very nicely onto dark matter detection. We have this substance that make, makes up 80% or more of all matter, but how can we try to detect it, given that doesn't, we can't see it and it doesn't interact with itself or with, with other matter? Do you want to talk maybe about the astrophysical uh, experiments, Peter? Yeah, so... Um... There's lots of ways you can indirectly constrain properties of dark matter. For example, as we discussed earlier, galaxies are believed to form in these dark matter halos. So by learning how these galaxies evolve, we can kind of tell how the dark matter is behaving, which kind of like can lead us closer and closer to understanding what it, how it behaves. Um, although we've been talking about dark matter being something that weakly interacts. If it interacts just a tiny, tiny bit, if it's dense enough, if there's enough dark matter, you can still see it interacting with itself. So... Some people believe that if you look to the parts of the universe where there's the densest bit of dark matter, you might be able to see um, photons being given off by 
uh, particles finally being dense enough that they're colliding with each other. Um, so there's maybe some hints that this has been detected, X-ray photons uh, being given off from these really dark, um, dense regions of dark matter um, that we think could only be produced by these particles colliding and giving a photon. But that's still kind of in a kind of speculative way. Um, is this the typical line spectra? That you yeah, I think that's exactly the, uh, what he was talking about. Um, yeah, so this is, um, as you said, when we look at galaxy clusters, we see an excess of photons, so particles of light, over what we would expect. Uh, one really small energy, so all the extra photons have very similar energies. And that's quite exciting, because if all the extra photons had loads of different energies, you'd think, yeah, maybe we've just modelled how the cluster works a bit wrong. But when they all have the same energy, there's very few ways you can produce that. One way is what we call an atomic line, which is when the electrons in atoms change from one energy level to another, and they produce a photon. And that produces a line, so all the photons have the same energy. Um, and so when we say line, we're talking about a spike on a graph. Yeah, it's not quite a line, a... it's like a very narrow bump. A very narrow <laughs> bump. It, it, it might as well be a line. Yeah, it might it? as well be a line, is the point. So all, um, all the photons are at basically the yeah, same energy. Yeah. Um, but we know all the atomic lines because we can measure them on Earth, so we can subtract those off. And once you've done that, you're left with this line at three and a half kilo electron volts. And this could be um, dark matter particles decaying into two photons. And then the energy of the photons would just be set by the mass of the dark matter particle. So that would then produce this very narrow line. But this is um, still speculative because astrophysics is just so complicated. The maybe there's just something else that we haven't really thought of yet. I think some people have suggested that maybe there's some potassium signature. <laughs> so. Yeah, so um, to subtract off the atomic lines is quite a hard procedure. And one thing you've got to do is work out all the abundances of all the different elements in the cluster. And there was a suggestion that we did it wrong for potassium. And the paper had... Yeah, the paper was called Dark Matter Going Bananas. It was a cunning pun. Because <laughs> bananas have lots of potassium. Yeah. <laughs> in Brilliant. Um, so do you really have to take into account like all like hundred so elements? Or do you just pick um, ones where you think are going to be most so abundant? Not a hundred, because um, the very heavy elements aren't found in clusters. You, you can only really make them artificially on Earth. But you do have to take into account a lot of them. Um, it's a really big job that's really only been made possible by computers. Okay, so that's the astrophysical observations. You may just to tie up something that you spoke earlier about, Tabitha. We could try to find dark matter in particle accelerators. Yes, definitely. And there's lots of active research um, working on exactly that at the moment at the LHC. Um, so what you're doing there is in a similar way to the astrophysics where you're looking for an excess of photons where you're not expecting it. Um, there they, as I said, as we've mentioned, the dark matter particles, you can't detect them. So when we do these massive collisions in like linear colliders like the LHC, how you would identify the dark matter particles have been produced is that you'd see kind of a lack of energy. So, for example, if you imagine two things colliding and one of them you see bounce back the other way, but there's nothing in the other direction, 
you that that violates conservation of momentum so you've got some missing momentum some missing energy from that collision and that's how you infer that something else that you're not detecting is being produced so you look for these very specific events where for example monojet where you get like a huge jet of hadrons in one direction and nothing in the other direction. Sorry, forgive my ignorance. What's a hadron? So a hadron <laughs> is um, what you generate loads of in the LHC. Well, so, the yes. name would suggest. <laughs> yes. So uh, a hadron is, is something that's made of, of quarks. Um, so it's the stuff that ordinary matter is composed of. Um, so because we're smashing together hadrons in the LHC, generally when you smash them together you're going to produce a whole bunch of hadrons alongside anything else that you're interested in um, so you just call it a hadron jet because it's a mass of, of hadrons that gets chucked in one direction um, and they're very useful because you get this very strong signal in one direction and then nothing in the other direction um, so one of the difficulties is that of course neutrinos as we've mentioned before are also not detected and they're inferred in the same way from this sort of missing momentum um, but what they're doing in colliders is looking for potential decays um, where you do see this sort of this, this monojet or, or some sort of similar interaction with missing momentum more often than can be explained by neutrinos. And therefore you infer that there's some kind of other non-detectable particle being created in that machine. But that wouldn't necessarily be what we observe in the bullet cluster, for Exactly, example. exactly. Which is why, although these experiments are very interesting um, in terms of looking for possible regions for dark matter, in terms of isolating even more precisely what mass to expect and things like that, the only way that we can actually say that we have detected dark matter is through actually detecting the dark matter that's all around us. Um, and that involves a very different type of detector and different type of experiment. Yeah. I mean, you are involved in the design of some next generation of accelerators. It's a put rather grand term. And it's, yeah. it's one, <laughs> one of the things that you're looking towards so detectors are designed in a very slightly different way to the LHC to make yeah, this easier? Yeah, so I, I actually work on, I mean, we talked about the fact that the LHC is a hadron collider, so I actually work on future lepton colliders. So leptons are more fundamental, so that's things like electrons. Um, and what we're doing in these future machines, hopefully, is it means that the collision is much, much cleaner. So we have a much, much more detailed uh, picture of the energy that we're putting in and the energy that we're getting out. So the problem with hadrons is they're made of quarks. So it's a bit like smashing two balls together, but inside each ball is lots of other little balls. So you're never sure from which little ball collision has actually generated your event. So there's kind of an uncertainty on the energy that you're putting in. Whereas with leptons, they're fundamental, so when you smash them together you know very accurately how much energy you're putting in, which means you can much more accurately reconstruct your missing momentum from whatever happens afterwards. Um, so the hope is that in these future machines, um, it'll be similar sorts of experiments to what's being done in the LHC, looking for these monojets with missing momentum, but it'll be done with much higher resolution. So, um, yeah, and also very light, hard uh, high statistics, um, which is what's required for all of these experiments. Because it's hard to, because mm -hmm. we're looking for, as you, like, it's not even a needle in a haystack, is it? Yes, a, yeah, a exactly. Pee, a pee in the Milky Way, you told me. <laughs> exactly, a pee in the Milky okay. Way, yeah. <laughs> so we start to talk about direct detection on Earth, which is where quite a lot of uh, research is going into. But I think before we do that, I'd really like to hear what some of you are doing at the moment. So we've heard a bit about um, uh, Talitha's collider design. 
Um, Peter, what are, are you thinking about at the moment? Uh, so I'm thinking about uh, the kind of interaction between how galaxies evolve and how the dark matter distribution evolves. So as we kind of discussed earlier, uh, we think that dark matter halos, these blobs of dark matter we believe exist, are crucial for the formation of galaxies. And as Fran said, we now being able to understand like the structure of the universe, we kind of thinking of the universe that on large scales it's a kind of continuous thing, but if you kind of zoom into segments, there's this kind of rich structure, and you get the galaxies and clusters of galaxies, and clusters of clusters of galaxies, and so on. Um, so I kind of um, use kind of what we believe is the kind of um, theoretical kind of structure of dark matter distribution in the universe. Uh, people are often surprised by this kind of like, well, isn't dark matter this kind of mysterious thing? Kind of in my work, the dark matter is the thing that we understand very well because dark matter, <laughs> dark matter in theory, if it, if it is as to be believed, um, behaves in a very simple way. It doesn't act, interact with anything. So the structure of dark matter we think is uh, behaving in this very simple way. What's much more complicated is how all the kind of rest of the universe, the stars and the galaxies and everything kind of forms kind of on top of that structure. Uh, so I use kind of uh, large telescopes around the world, data from telescopes in Chile and Hawaii to kind of probe what galaxies are doing kind of from right now and uh, as I'm sure some of the listeners know, further away is further back in time. So you can kind of plot galaxies from now back to 10 billion years ago and kind of look at how they're statistically arranged and kind of what structures are in that. You can, can then relate that kind of observed structure of galaxies to the kind of theoretical distribution of dark matter and that kind of gives you information about how these galaxies are forming in relation to the dark matter so for example like a kind of core problem in this is if you kind of imagine a halo of dark matter all the kind of gas in that is kind of believed to have fallen into the center and kind of formed the galaxy but if you kind of like go to progressively more massive kind of uh, dark matter halos the galaxies do get bigger but like not much if you kind of go to a dark matter ten times as big, the galaxy might only get two times as big, um, and kind of understanding why you get this diminishing returns, why kind of it's really hard to build these more massive galaxies, even though you've got all the gas in these halos, is a kind of ongoing problem of research. Fran, what's going on in the Axiom world <laughs> at the moment? <laughs> well, um, so I'm working on two sort of kinds of axions. One is the dark matter axions that we've already spoken about but axions can also behave as what's called dark radiation so this is just very fast particles that we can't see so neutrinos which you mentioned earlier would be dark radiation but we know what they are so we just call them neutrinos and i'm looking at detecting axions using the fact that in a magnetic field axions have a very small chance to convert to a photon which is converting to photons what axions want to do? Is that um, well, I wouldn't say stage? they wanted to. Um, that's a bit anthropomorphic. <laughs> but that's just... Um, yeah, that's... If you just work out, um, like, the equations of motion, so in the same way that if you set off a pendulum, it'll swing backwards and forwards, axions go backwards and forwards between axions and photons. Except they spend... Typically, if it starts off as an axion, it won't spend all that much time as a photon. Um, it's slightly more complicated than that because it's a quantum thing. But well, it's, it's complicated just... <laughs> enough to know what I'm yeah. um, So we have this small chance to convert into a photon, and it is like a very small chance. It's like typically something like one in 10,000 to one in a billion, depending on the field strength, which is why they can still be dark matter. Otherwise, of course, we'd be able to see them. And happily, there are magnetic fields in galaxy clusters. So galaxy clusters have these magnetic fields which stretch over billions of light years. 
So these are really ideal conditions to observe axioms. So I'm looking at what kind of signal we'd expect from axion to photon conversions in galaxies and galaxy clusters, and then also mapping this to dark matter models for the 3.5 kV line signal, which we talked about earlier. Yes. And so if you make a prediction of where mm. you should see this um, yeah. this signal for the axions yeah. turning into the photons, and then someone does an experiment and, and sees yeah. it, would that be, as mm. a, use the term again, a kind of smoking gun for axions um, existing? So, well, we need improvements in astrophysics. Um, excitingly, there is an excess of X-ray photons in galaxy clusters. Um, so there's a 3.5 kV line, and there's also a non-line excess and low energy x-rays in galaxy clusters that could be explained by axions, um, but it's still debated because astrophysics is so complicated, it can be quite hard to work out whether you have an excess or not. And normally when you're betting particle physics against astrophysics, astrophysics wins. <laughs> but occasionally particle <laughs> physics wins. So it's just about um, looking at the anomalies that are there and thinking about how we could explain them in other ways and also making predictions. So we can rule out high levels of axiom photon conversion, for example, by just the fact that we don't see loads of photons. Kind of ruling out parts of parameter space is almost as important as trying to discover things. Because if we can just sort of rule out all the particles that don't exist, then we'll have less particles that might exist <laughs> left. <laughs> right, we have about 10 minutes left, and we're moving to one of the most active areas of current research, which is trying to detect uh, WIMPs, which is the other candidate at the moment for other than axions, for <laughs> uh, what dark matter might be. It's saying that there are loads of these experiments around the world, but the one we'll talk about now is called Deep 3600. Yes, that's right. right? Yes. Um, which is under two kilometres underneath Canada. Do yeah. you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, before I shifted into designing accelerators, um, I did my master's project working um, on research and development for the Deep 3600. Um, so this, basically, this is the direct detection technique. So what you're trying to detect is dark matter particles in the universe that are flowing through the Earth and through us all the time from our own galactic dark matter halo. And how you do this, it's basically like a sort of a target experiment. So you go to somewhere, first of all, where there's not a lot else going on. Um, and a good place for this is underground, which is why these experiments tend to be, uh, they tend to be the very, very low elevations. So in particular, this one is at the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory um, in, in Canada. Um, and it is an active nickel mine, um, and it's two kilometres under, underground, um, where they've created this laboratory for doing these type of neutrino and dark matter experiments. Because if you're trying to detect something that's sort of flying through the atmosphere, the problem we've got is that it's very messy. So there's like a lot of other stuff going on. So cosmic rays hitting, like as they hit our atmosphere, generate these massive showers of particles. So the problem is that most of the time, even if you did have a dark matter particle going through your detector, you wouldn't see it because there's too much else going on. Well, if we just go back a step, so we've been saying for the uh, show that 
dark matter doesn't interact with matter, but you're telling me that it does just a very small amount, just a bit. Very, very, very rarely. Um, so we it's... also don't know that it does. This is also true. This is also true. So the theory is that if it's a particle and if you throw enough of them at matter um, and you watch for long enough, <laughs> at some point you will get a head-on collision between dark matter and ordinary matter. Um, and this is actually how neutrinos have been detected. So there have been lots of uh, Nobel Prizes recently for um, experiments that have made very detailed measurements of neutrinos, made fantastic discoveries using exactly this method of generating basically a massive target mass um, and then watching it under very clean conditions for these very rare times when these otherwise undetectable particles literally collide head-on with something in your detector um, and generate either sort of photons of light or some kind of other um, sort of, it's usually a scintillating target so that when it receives the, the kick from this direct collision it produces um, photons of light which can then be detected. Um, the huge challenge of this is that, as you said, this, this happens, I mean, it's predicted to happen incredibly rarely, if at all. Um, so you need massive, massive experiments and they need to be in very, very clean environments. So by going deep underground, what that means is you've got two kilometres of rock to uh, basically stop all the other mess that you've got going on from cosmic rays, um, whereas the dark matter doesn't care, it just goes straight through most of the time. Um, but I mean, the sad thing is, in a detector of the kind of ton scale, you're still expecting only a few events of these to happen per year. Um, so you have to watch very carefully, you have to make sure that you know everything else that could potentially be getting in there and creating signals that could look like dark matter. Um, and you, and like you have to go to such home. precautions to make sure that your yeah. equipment, like you yes. sandpaper the edge. To... Yes, everything has to be completely radio pure because, I mean, if, if your detector has anything that's naturally radioactively decaying, that's going to generate particles within your detector that could look like a dark matter signal and, and not be. So it is, it, is, it is worse than needle in a haystack because you have to cut out so much. Um, but as I said, what's, what's hopeful about these experiments is that they have worked for neutrinos in the past um, in detecting in a very similar way. So um, it's a known technology that's now being sort of expanded and evolved for dark matter. So we're running out of time, but perhaps just before we leave that topic and move on to a few closing remarks, you could tell me where the argon comes in. So I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> basically, I've seen your wonderful picture, it's basically a big bulb of liquid yeah. argon, essentially. So the noble gases are fantastic for um, dark matter detection because they scintillate and they're transparent to their own scintillation. So they, they give off photons when you hit them? Yeah, so when you give them a bit of extra energy, they, they, they will produce these photons which you can then detect. So the Deep 3600 experiment uses liquid argon. Um, there are other experiments such as the Lux uh, experiment, which currently holds the world record for dark matter detection, uh, which is liquid xenon. Um, I thought we hadn't detected it. No, no. So it's when I say <laughs> world record for detection, what we mean is, um, so basically we've got these constraints on what we're trying to measure for this dark matter based on these astrophysical things. It's got to be a certain mass. It's got to interact a certain at a certain rate. Um, but that's still quite a large window. So what these experiments are doing is they're trying to get more and more sensitive to look at more and more of that kind of parameter space and then say, OK, we've looked at all of these masses at this you know, cross section and we haven't seen anything. So at the moment, 
it's basically a null result. So the Lux experiment has ruled out the lowest uh, cross section at, at a certain mass. It's not seen the biggest yes, number. It's of yes, yes, it's the world record for dark matter non-detection. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, it's important. It's, it's important. So yeah, so a couple of years ago when their results came out, that the headlines were very amusing of uh, big news: dark matter not detected. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's how it works. You keep course, probing yeah. these spaces until you eventually narrow it down, and you you hopefully discover something. So yeah. Maybe it's a final few comments. The floor is open. In the next five years, what? your predictions? What the new experiments being built? What do you think might happen? Uh, well, the exciting products coming up in astronomy, from my perspective, are probably uh, things like the Euclid satellite, which will probe galaxies going back to the beginning of the universe, like I was talking about earlier. But the survey I work on is uh, looks at a size, a patch of sky the size of the moon on the sky, so uh, a quite a small patch of sky. This will extend that to the whole sky. Uh, which is going to be a huge amount of data. We'll be able to kind of probe the dark matter distribution in much more accurate ways to understand how the kind of structure of it behaves over time, uh, understand how that interacts with galaxies. The SKA will do the same in radio, and this will give us lots of information, not only about the galaxies, but how the structure's building up on time. Um, so we're things like, thinking light rays and radio, all the, all the spectrum. Yeah, it's, uh, and looking at galaxies in different fre frequencies gives you different information about them, allows you to look at different parts of the universe and so on. Um, and there's all these lots of surveys that look at, um, for example, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey will start a new project on detecting something called baryonic acoustic oscillations, which are basically detecting kind of sound waves of dark matter, um, which is a, an exciting project. That's been, detected, that's been detected so far, but we'll be able to, that's been detected in the universe today, but we'll be able to kind of plot that back to kind of like the last six billion years, how these sound waves have kind of grown. Um, so that's what we'll be looking at over the next five to ten years. Fran, do um, so one exciting thing about the three and a half kV line signal I was talking about earlier is there's a satellite going up that's got a much better energy resolution and it will be able to tell by looking at the line whether it's dark matter or astrophysics because they're different shapes. So, and if it is dark matter, that'll be the talk of the century. So that's very exciting. And a final sentence from Telephone. So if the LHC finds supersymmetric particles in the current run um, in the next couple of years, that would be incredibly exciting because they would be fantastic um, dark matter candidates. And in the meantime, there are something up to 50 direct dark matter detection experiments worldwide looking to directly detect it. Um, so any one of those could find a signal at, at any time. So it's very exciting. So we should just keep our, our eyes peeled. Yes. A, thank you, all three of you. A fascinating 45 minutes. Um, thank you. Next week, Cicero. <laughs>